Welcome everyone to episode 102 of Honestly Unbalanced, where we continue to have conversations with people that have tried to make your life a little bit better. This week we chat to Kyla Nielsen. Kyla is a highly experienced yoga teacher and she actually started practicing with her mom 23 years ago. Her mom is also a yoga teacher. She leads training, she's developed an app, she's built a bustling yoga retreat center in Nicaragua. She's got a massive social media following and ultimately she's a wellness entrepreneur who knows how to actually monetize her passions. In this conversation, we talk about the pros and cons of being open on social media, how life changes after two near-death experiences, how to teach yoga to the overflexible, lessons learned through building a retreat center, and how to prioritize mental health in the digital age. Before you listen, I want to give a little shout out to some of our sponsors. Firstly, Lifeform Yoga Mats, code hustler 10 h-u-s-l-e-r 10 will get you 10 percent off them and you can also get 10 percent off our favorite shoes or at least my favorite shoes vivo barefoot with code adam hustler vb all caps and if you're interested in joining us for some yoga uh, we've got an online platform at honestly unbalanced and you can get a code you can't get a code well, you can get a code you can get 25% off with a code HONEST25, all caps, H-O-N-E-S-T, 25. And that gets you 25% off a single 12-month membership or reoccurring monthly membership. If you fancy becoming a yoga teacher, my next teacher training starts in London at the end of March with the amazing teacher Michael James Wong at Tri-Yoga with some special guests as well. There's another one later in the year if you can't make it. And Holly always has various sound healing trainings on the run. Uh, and stay tuned because we're going to be releasing a retreat soon. I've got some retreats in Switzerland, Canada and the UK Woodland coming up. But also we're going to release a joint one, which is me and Holly doing something very magical in Dorset. So stay tuned. Uh, sign up to one of our newsletters if you want to be the first to know and first to get a chance to book that. OK, I'll let you enjoy the episode. Take care, guys. Honestly, I'm I've stalked you a lot in the last like 48 hours and you know sometimes i get i I go quite heavily into people's past suddenly seven years seven years of scrolling has gone by oh no don't even know what happened seven years ago but it seems it seems like you've always been like super open and was that something you were always comfortable with or did it take work and have you noticed benefits of being so open yeah yeah that's a great question so i think Let's see. As far as being open, it's kind of yes and no. I I like to express myself through writing. Mm -hmm. And so way before I had a following of any kind, you know, just regular social media, even MySpace days, like early, just on the internet, I'm always writing about my feelings. I just have to get it out of me. But I've always kind of had a disconnect that like people are reading it. (laughs) It's more of just that act of getting it out. Mm -hmm. But the way that I've expressed myself and sharing my life has always been the same whether I've had a really big audience or a really small audience so in that sense it's felt natural it doesn't always feel as natural speaking wise or in person hard conversations sometimes can still be challenging people you know they'll ask a lot like is it have you always been this vulnerable have you always been this open and for me it doesn't necessarily feel vulnerable to share in the way that I do because 
it almost feels kind of selfish. Like I said, it's like a cathartic thing. I'm just trying to get it out of me, but I have kind of a disconnect that, oh yeah, real people are actually going to read this. Or I might sit on a podcast and someone will say something back to me that I wrote or I said, and I'm like, oh, oh gosh, I forgot that it's public. It's, it's, so, it's weird to think how many people do read it. So you have over, how many followers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, over 200,000 followers. Over 400,000, yeah. Sorry, I've, I've, I've halved you. <laughs> <laughs> over okay. 400,000 followers. And you just imagine that many people in front of you. Imagine 400,000 people. Yeah. That is multiple arenas. Oh and si- sitting on a sofa and talking about the things you do. Just, just imagine just kind of just <laughs> opening yourself to them. It, it, there is this weird detachment in the social media age. You forget like how many people are like seeing the inside of your toilet. You know, if you take a photo <laughs> or like, or mm-hmm. seeing, seeing your deepest thoughts. And so, yeah, so how, how has that evolved for you? Like, how, how have you used being so open as a way to connect with people? Was there, was there a plan yeah, behind so that? Also, so just to kind of also finish answering your first question as far as benefits, there definitely been benefits. I think just that feeling of connection and reminding people they might not be alone going through a hard thing. I get that same reminder back to me if I'm going through that hard thing. But there have also absolutely been downfalls too and some severe boundaries being crossed and privacy and even like safety issues. So it has definitely changed over time. And even though I post a lot now, I actually share a lot less than what I used to. Um, I kind of reserve the deeper, longer shares for my blog, which has a much smaller audience than my social media, for instance. Um, or on something like a podcast where we can go more in depth. But I have had to kind of reassess different boundaries and how I share because, yeah, it has some weird things have happened because of it, absolutely. But there has also been a lot of benefit to it. I've never done it from a sense of strategy of like, oh, if I share this, then that will get a lot of engagement or people will like that or more people will follow. It's always just been like something is feels like it's just coming out of me and I have to get it out. And as a result, things have grown, but it's not necessarily from that strategic place. Mm. And a really big share for you was in 2020 when you when you officially came out on Instagram. So I'd love it if you could speak mm-hmm. about that. Did you face adversity or were you welcomed with open arms? Like how was that for you? Yeah, so that was, I, I faced a little bit of adversity, not not a crazy amount, but I would say the most surprising was just the kind of the yoga people and the things that they said uh, turned very spiritual, bypassy. Like, oh, well, if your masculine and feminine energy was more balanced, then you wouldn't be having this oh, issue and things like that. I had some people who were signed up for retreats. This was, I came out before COVID, before the world shut down and retreats are still happening. So I had some people that were signed up for retreats with me that year that wanted to cancel because no. they didn't feel comfortable anymore. Oh my yeah. Goodness. So there was some things like that. Overall, I would say, you know, looking at the size of the audience and everything, overall, very positive experience. Of course, there's always going to be some bad seeds and some bad eggs in the bunch, but overall pretty positive. And it kind of continues to be that way. I share my life and my wife the same amount that I would share when I was in relationships with men. So, you know, it's just, it's sprinkled in there. I do still share little bits of my personal life and especially my stories, you know, I'm sharing me and my dogs and her and that kind of thing. 
I noticed that whenever I do post, like actually share a post with her, I will always lose at least 1,000 followers, maybe more. (laughs) And so it's wild. Like it still happens. Sometimes people will still say, you know, nasty internet commenty things. But um, overall, I would say the coming out experience was pretty seamless for me. And the way that I tried to approach it was just as if it was a non-factor. And I just introduced her to my audience the same way that I introduced other partners to my audience that happened to be men. Mm. So I didn't want to be like, hey, I had this huge announcement. Guess what? I just, I didn't make a big deal about it and just hoped that people would respond in the same way. And how do you manage the difficult, you know, the troll-like comments? Because that's something that scares me about growing my social media. I think when you grow bigger, naturally you're going to attract more people that try to bring you down. And I just don't think I had the skin for it. I think... I know, you know, I know it's not personal, it's their issues, but that still doesn't take away the fact that it would deeply hurt me. So do you have tools to sort of protect yourself from that or to manage it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, and I've only kind of recently sort of shifted here because I used to feel like, oh, I don't ever want to just delete and block people because it it made it seem like I was hiding something. Like Mm -hmm. if I delete and block what they say, then people are going to think that what they said was true and I'm guilty. But recently I've started deleting and blocking because I'm just like, I don't want this. I don't need this. And this isn't true. And I have nothing to hide. And if people do think that what they're saying is true, then that's also on them. So that has kind of shifted for me over the years, but it's true. It's like, even if it is something that is ridiculous, it still hurts. It's still, and it it does happen pretty infrequently. I would say, especially for the size of my account, you would think that the ratio would be higher. And I don't know if it's just, probably from the content that I share and everything, but I don't get a lot of troll comments. The most that I get is usually homophobic about me and my wife or us trying for a baby and that kind of stuff. It's, it's, I think it's completely natural to focus on the negative. Like we are programmed to do that because back in the day, and if there was a lion stalking us on the plane or there was a fear of that, if we were wrong about it, we would die. But if we if we if we weren't wrong and there was just a noise and it was in the bushes and it like th- there is a big risk if it is I'm I'm, I'm not articulating this very well. <laughs> I think I get the essence of what you said. Yeah, we and get so the idea. If, if it's a bad thing, the bad thing <laughs> yeah. has bigger consequences than the good thing. Is what I'm basically trying it's like to say. A so it's completely natural thing. that we ha- we mm-hmm. emphasize the stuff that could do us harm because we want to protect ourselves from mm-hmm. that. I found that Instagram tends to be nicer than other platforms. And I'm not on that many others. You know, I haven't even begun with TikTok, but I do a little bit on YouTube. And the only only comments I've had (laughs) have just been like completely abusive, like immediately, in quite quite a funny way. Any other platform. Just straight (laughs) in there. I've heard that it's crazy. And TikTok I heard is like the worst. So I'm like, nope, not doing it. It's like, I I can't stand his voice. Who can listen to him for half an hour? And People just, are so mean, just, aren't they? Oh, he looks like Magnus Carlsen. I didn't even know who Magnus Carlsen was, but apparently I really look like the chess player, Magnus Carlsen. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, people can, people get very heavy. But I, I agree with you. Like, it's just worth, on Instagram at least, blocking, deleting. Like, the, your account is a dictatorship. There is no, there is no, nothing of value by debating with people. There is nothing of value by promoting their views by leaving them there. Just delete them. Get rid I, lo- I love what you said though about um you know your your quest really is to be um, you didn't say it exactly like this but it, along the lines of to be your most authentic self in this world like that that is that wins over everything else 
So, so how does one do the work to become their most authentic selves, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. I don't know if I, have, <laughs> if I have the answer for that. But I think, I mean, staying open and staying curious, I think are the biggest, the biggest practices that I lean into. I really kind of try to shy away from anything that's too dogmatic, very black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking will always raise a red flag to me where it's like, hmm, is that the truth? Is that the only way? And I think for me, just maintaining that openness and curiosity has been, it's brought me closer to myself because it helps me to understand what I do believe in, what I do like, what I don't like, what my morals are, what my character is. So oh, it's beautiful. And if we were to go back a little bit about uh, how your yoga journey started, I know it's a really lovely story how you started it with your your mum was the yoga teacher and you just wanted to spend a bit more time with your mum. And, you know, like everyone, it was a it was a physical practice for a good few years few, uh, before things mm-hmm. changed for you. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing about your your near death experiences that kind of pushed you from the physical aspect of yoga into the more mental, emotional, spiritual yeah. realms. Yeah, so my mom started teaching me when I was 12, and it was very physically focused at the time. And and I, it's not like, I want to be clear, I wasn't practicing when I was 12, like devoted 6 a.m. every day, little yogi child. It was not like that at all. It was kind of on and off. It was sporadic. Sometimes I would go, sometimes I wouldn't. And same throughout high school into college, I would also sometimes go, sometimes I wouldn't. I was never super dedicated. I've always liked moving my body and like physical exercise. So that was always my motive. And then when I left college, I ended up, I started traveling by myself for the first time. And I went to school actually for teaching, but a classroom teacher didn't think I was going to be a yoga teacher. So after I graduated, I started teaching abroad and I first started in Ghana. And then two years later, I was in Kenya and Uganda and teaching English for full time. That's what my degree is in and what I was practicing at the time. And when I was in Uganda, I got bit by a tick that had African tick bite fever, which is like the African version of Lyme disease. And I got super, super sick. Um, And I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. I just got really sick. The bite got really infected, similar to what happens with Lyme, where I got the crazy bullseye rash all over my body. And my arm, where the tick bite was, was just swelling up. And I was in a pretty small village in Uganda. And they didn't really know what to do with me. They didn't really know much of how to treat anything other than malaria, because that was really common there. And so they were treating me for malaria, even though I wasn't testing for it. And then they brought in a surgeon, which is a very loose term, but they brought in a surgeon to cut the bite out of my arm because they thought that that would help. And I was, I was at the time, I was 24, pretty new to traveling on my own. I'd never had a really thick kind of experience like this abroad yet. So I, I also didn't know about advocating for myself and asking questions and all of these things I know now. And I was just kind of desperate to feel better. So they cut the bite out of my arm and then they didn't really properly clean it or anything. So it ended up, the infection got into my bloodstream. I went septic and I, this is, brings me to the near death part where then I'm in an ambulance. They're rushing me to the capital, which was about four hours away. 
And I was in a lot of physical pain at this point too, not only my arm, but just my whole body. I mean, I couldn't walk. I don't remember even a lot of this. This went on for like 48 hours actually. And I was just kind of like in and out of consciousness. But what I really remember because the drive to the hospital was four hours and we're in an ambulance, which was really actually more like the size of a Hertz or something. Like it wasn't like a big ambulance that we would, so it was a tiny car. I was sharing it with someone else who also needed to go to the hospital. And I was there with the nurse and she was just kind of holding me on this metal table as I'm flying around. And they also had just redone the road, really beautiful paved road all the way to the Capitol, but it has a speed bump every quarter mile, the entire four hour drive. So the ambulance is just flying and I'm just like constantly bumping up in my arm. Everything is in so much pain. And I was just really trying to count my breath and listen to my breath and feeling like, okay, as long as I'm breathing, I know that I'm alive and was just really kind of, my breath sounded the same way it sounds when it's underwater. Like if you're snorkeling and you can hear your breath, how it's so rich and it's so loud and it's just kind of all consuming. And it was just that reminder, like you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. And that is really kind of what brought me to yoga in a deeper sense of just really understanding breath as a life force and brought me a lot closer to meditation as well. But just really understanding what breath is in yoga, which of course, you know, is so much more than asana and so much more than the physical practice that I had been doing before. So that, that was the really the game changer for me. Were there any kind of realizations or revelations you had over that time in terms of how you wanted to live your life going forward? So actually, I almost said funnily enough, but it's really not funny. But right six months before that, I actually had another near-death experience. I was in an abusive relationship at the time that ended really explosively. And we got in a really bad physical altercation. And he almost killed me in that moment. And I had that same experience where it was like, I left my body, I could see it from everything happening from up above. And had that kind of what you're talking about, like that reassessment of like, what is important? What do I want? And was able to get myself out of that situation. It was this feeling of like, oh, this isn't a dream. This is my real life. And you know, when you're having a nightmare and you want to scream, but you open your mouth and nothing comes mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like at first. And then I realized this is not a dream. You can scream. And so I just opened my mouth and started screaming bloody murder. And that is what saved me because neighbors saw and called the cops and everything. But so that that experience was really the one that kind of made me reassess, like, what do I want to do with my life? Who am I? I was also, again, still 24. So pretty young. It's kind of around that time where you might be questioning some of those things anyways. And that was one of the reasons why I did choose to leave and go back and teach and travel. And I was still figuring things out. I did not even come close to knowing or I was, I had a lot of healing to do, but I was kind of in denial of that. I just thought that travel would be like a really good band-aid for it, but it was a little bit of escapism too, it turns out. So yeah, that happened just six months before the tick experience happened so it was kind of like the two together that just really it was a big year I should say that oh my gosh you've been through a lot and at at what point did you decide to do your yoga teacher training 
Yeah, so it was about two years after that. I came, so I was abroad still for a while. I did come back to the States briefly because I had to be a part of the trial because he was arrested. The state of California was pressing charges against him and I was subpoenaed as the main witness. So we were in a nine month long court case for this that went to a jury trial. So I had to come back from my travels to be a part of that trial for two weeks, which was also horrible. And you can understand why people say, you know, victims don't ever want to come forward because that process is re-traumatizes you all over again. Um, he also ended up being found not guilty of everything. So then there was also that feeling of just like, and all of this was for nothing. And I ended up leaving again and I started my first nonprofit and I was away for two years, kind of until I ran out of money and then came back to the States because I felt like this was the only place that I could come and work and kind of came back against my will in a way. I really did not want to come back. And that was the time when I did my first yoga teacher training. And did you, what did your mom think of that? Did you, did you know that was always my a yoga path teacher for you? Training? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Even when I first did it, I was like, I'm not going to become a teacher. Like I'm just doing it to deepen my practice, you know, as people say. And I, at that point, have been practicing for over 20 years. So, or no, sorry, over 10 years. And so I was just like, yeah, this is kind of the next step. And it was, I was really leaning into yoga at that time because I was still just going through a hard time and trying to assimilate. But she was like, really? Like, you're going to get your teacher training? I was like, no, 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 but I'm not going to teach. It's not like that. And this is just, this, this is just for me. And Lo and behold, here we are. <laughs> but I, th I think that's a perfect reason to do a teacher training. To because yeah. you've been because you've been doing something for a while and you want deeper knowledge. I think that's perfect. Rather than you want a career change or you want to change your life, mm -hmm. that puts massive mm -hmm. expectations on it. Just because you want to know more about yoga, I think is is the perfect reason. I'm intrigued to know about how your mom persuaded you to do yoga at twelve. I was even speaking to someone today, a mother about the relationship with actually their 12, 13-year-old daughter uh, and the hormones involved in that and alike. And I think, <laughs> I think mo most mother-daughter relationships seem very, fairly volatile. Like, do you think that getting that yoga in early helped with that relationship or were there still like lots of volatility? Vol oh, no, is volatility was... a word? <laughs> volatility. So. Yeah, <laughs> it is. We'll say it is. <laughs> I, I was a wild child too, not necessarily child, but adolescent. So I had like a very strong rebellious phase, big partying, got very into drugs, all that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't say that the yoga helped with any of that. I was still, me and my mom and my dad, I was just, I really resisted authority. But um, yeah, my mom, she has, she has always been into fitness. So she was kind of like, imagine Jane Fonda type workout, family <laughs> attire, yes. Reebok. <laughs> I grew up in the gym daycare. You know, I, I knew that environment really well. So she actually never did. They didn't have 200 hour trainings back then. Yoga Alliance was not around. None of that was a thing. So she just self-studied. She learned about yoga and asked the gym where she was working if she could start teaching this thing called yoga. We also were from a pretty small town in Northern California. Like none of the, there was no yoga studios. There was nothing like that. Um, so yeah, I used to go to her classes at the gym, but they were also pretty physically focused, although it was primarily actually a lot older people. So it was more like restorative physical focus, not necessarily like high intensity vinyasa. 
And I was also a gymnast at the time. So I liked it because I was like, oh, I'm already flexible and I could do everything. So that makes me good. And I get attention from all the old people. <laughs> and they think I'm so good and cute. So I think I just liked that. <laughs> On that note of, because obviously there's lots of gymnasts and dancers that get into yoga mm. and are told they're mm -hmm. good. Uh, depending on the teacher, yeah. but often, especially 10 years ago, everyone, oh my God, you're amazing. You, or or th that's why they did it initially because people said, oh my God, you're amazing at dance. You should do yoga as well. And mm -hmm. there is, of course, you, you know, you talk about the evolution, you know, the realization that there's no good at yoga, you know, good is in inverted comments uh, and alike. But your, you know, your style of teaching and your style of movement is clearly influenced, of course, by your, what you can do with the body, which is incredible from a gymnastics gymnastic background, et cetera. When, like, how do you control, let's say, not control, control is completely the wrong word, but when people come to you who are naturally very bendy, you know, they're maybe 22, 23, mm. they want to do your training and they are floppy, as it were, and they have oh, that yeah. movement but don't have, the, <laughs> don't have that control. Like, how do you rein them in and persuade them actually they, they can still make the cool shapes and do those things that feel and look beautiful, but how do you make sure they make it harder for themselves? Like, what's your persuading mm -hmm. tactic? Yeah, well, my classes, even if they are very bendy, they actually focus really heavily on strength still and mobility. So it is less of that. There's not really as much of an option for you to just kind of passively sit into something and have that banana back and just kind of hyperextend and do there. The way that I'll cue and everything is very to the strength and the integrity of the pose so that you are avoiding that because I did that and I know that it can look really cool, but it's not the best for you, especially over time. And it will challenge you more to call on strength if you are super bendy flexy, the same way that if you're super, super strong, then I will lean a little bit more into flexibility for that person. So it is individual for the person, but absolutely it can be, you know, I know that a lot of people get told that where, oh, if you're super flexible or if your body is able to make these certain shapes or, and sometimes it's even just like the lines of the body. I have really long arms and legs, but I'm only five, three. And so a lot of the times when people meet me in person, they're like, oh, we thought you were way taller because my photos, I look very limmy, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's actually just the shape that I can make. It's not, it doesn't mean that you're good at yoga. It definitely doesn't mean that you're a good teacher. And I think when I very first started teaching that also added this a lot of pressure because I was just starting to share on Instagram from the yoga perspective. I was still had a personal size account and everything, but I could physically do a lot of things. I did not know how to teach them yet. And so I felt like, oh, if I'm going to be posting this stuff, I better know how to teach this really well too, because otherwise it just, it doesn't align. You know, people might come initially for the beautiful shape, the flashy pose, but they're going to stay for your ability to be able to teach it. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's really important. And it's interesting as well that for the, for an external observer, especially someone newer to yoga, you can't tell the difference whether someone is actually hanging out or whether they're actually engaged. And like, mm -hmm. we actually, our last guest with a, a former like 10 year prima ballerina. Uh, mm. And she was talking about how she went to contort some contortion schools and the conditioning and the strength that a contortionist has is obscene. Whereas if you just yeah, look right. at it, you just you would look and think, oh, it's all just passive. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's so hard because you can't see what's happening in the body. You can't see internal mm -hmm. engagement, can you? Yeah. 
I think it too is a lot of like the entry into the pose. You know, you, that is one thing that you can see if someone is just really like cranking their foot back behind them or yanking their torso towards their thighs, you can tell like, okay, why don't you use some of your strength in some areas and actually draw it up and then if it connects, mm. you know, go from there. So I do try to focus on a lot of entry and exit into the poses for that exact reason. I wish I'd had that guidance that you just said on my initial training because I was actually quite a new practitioner when I did my training and I was actually forced my lower back is not bendy at all and I was sort of forced into what's the one where you reach your arms behind oh, full dancers no. yeah yeah she she grabbed my foot and she was yanking it towards my hands and I could feel my back going but she was my teacher and I was thinking well she obviously knows what she was doing and then I was in pain the rest of the day and I thought but you know when you know it's just not right but there's still lots of styles that are, are popular that teach like that. And you see, you still see lots of assists yeah. where people are, teachers who are strong, are grabbing people's feet and pulling it to what, their head. What, you're saying that that's okay? No, no, no. I'm just yeah. saying there's still a lot yeah, of yeah, it, yeah. despite you know, the increased awareness. Mm-hmm. And there's still lots of students that go along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this glorification of range. Yeah. Changing direction a little mm-hmm. bit. I, I was It was lovely to go onto your website, actually, and have a look through your About Me section. I love the way you put it all together so creatively. And mm-hmm. one thing I loved, it wasn't just, you know, I'm a yoga teacher and this is what I do. It's you call yourself a, an entrepreneur who knows how to uh, monetize on her her passions. And I thought, oh, that's that's brilliant because, you know, teachers don't normally talk about that. And I think there's this kind of weird mm-hmm. belief in the yoga world that to make money isn't spiritual and you don't really talk about it. And you should almost mm-hmm. like give your time and energy away for free, which doesn't actually help anyone because then you're giving from this place of lack, you know, rather than, you know, having money and being able to live. So First of all, have you experienced, I guess, adversity from talking in that way? And secondly, I guess, what are your views on um, working to, you know, live a life that you love and uh, to thrive and not just survive? Yeah. Yeah, I love talking about this. I think it's so important for probably a lot of industries, but especially with yoga because of that spiritual element that you were talking about. And absolutely, I have receive feedback that people don't always like it when I say you know like hey it's okay to make money it's okay to charge you don't have to be donation based you don't have to do a sliding scale you also can do those things if you want to but don't do it from a place of feeling guilty either Mm -hmm. don't do it because you feel like that's what you should do and sustainably energy wise like you will not have enough energy if you were just living and working for free permanently that that doesn't make any sense if you're doing it a one-off, if you're supporting a cause, all of these things, like, sure, that's great. That's a nice thing to do. But if you don't have another job and if you don't have a partner who's supporting you, why should we be expected to just live and work for free? That doesn't make any sense. And, you know, traditionally, yogis would be taken care of by their community and taken in and fed and repaid in those other ways where the community is supporting you and obviously modern yoga is very different than that and we don't live that same way so we have to be supported monetarily (laughs) so yeah i really like to encourage teachers to just kind of look at their relationship with money and what is that block Mm -hmm. are you feeling shame are you feeling guilt what is that block from allowing you to be okay with making money particularly with this industry and I think that the next really important thing is just making sure that if you do want to teach full time, like that is your only job that is supporting you 100% and you are going to be living in a developed country in particular where prices are not cheap, then you cannot only teach 
studio classes. Mm -hmm. Like it's just not a sustainable way to support yourself forever. I think when you very first start teaching, it can be really helpful. Studio classes are great because you get a lot of different bodies. You really have to teach the midline. You have to think on your feet a lot more. And there's just, it really helps to define you as a teacher. But if you stay there forever, you will burn out because you have to teach a million classes a week to break even just to pay your bills when you have no time for anything else, let alone planning a retreat or anything else that might make you more money. So you really have to try to diversify, mm. I would say within like maybe the first year of teaching. And is, is that your experience? Is that sort of how you branched off into this way of thinking? Did you, were you the teacher that, that taught and taught and taught and burnt out and, until you thought actually there must be another way? Or have you always kind of been entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah. So I, I mean, like I said, I didn't, I wasn't planning on teaching from my training. So actually the reason that I started teaching was that I had started my nonprofit and I needed to raise money for my first project. So I don't have my nonprofit anymore, but I had it for almost 10 years. I did solar projects in off the grid communities. And at the time you used to be able to pay to expedite your application to be a 501c3 um, in the states, at least that's federally recognized, which means that if someone pays a donation to you, then it's a tax write-off. So that's really helpful if you're getting big corporate donations. And that was initially my plan was to target larger solar companies and they would help to fund my projects. I was going to do like a very corporate structured business. And then at the turn of the year, they decided to change that law where you can't expedite the application. You, everyone just has to wait in line. And the line was a year long. Mm. And I already had a project that was planned in April. So I had four months to come up with $40,000. And I that sounded like $5 million for me at the time. Like that was so unattainable. And so I just had done my yoga teacher training a few months prior. And I thought, okay, well, I can, I can just start teaching classes in the park. I'll do donation-based classes. Because it's for a charity, people tend to be more generous. And I'll kind of try to make like a little bit of an event out of it. So I reached out to sponsors so that we could do a raffle and people buy raffle tickets and co-taught it with another teacher who was a little bit more established in the community already. And we started, we raised like $300. We did another one, we raised $400. So that's a lot for one yoga class, you know, definitely more than you would normally get for a donation class in the park. And I started thinking, you know, like what if a lot of teachers taught classes in their parks and so this is, like I said, when I was kind of just starting to use Instagram for yoga, I still had a very personal size account, probably a thousand people or so, but I followed a lot of yoga people. I reached out to them. I was also living in Southern California at the time. And that was right when Ala was starting and a lot of other yoga brands. So it was kind of just like right place, right time as well. And having that network there and a lot of people said yes. So over the course of two weekends, we had several hundred teachers that were teaching classes in their communities. We ended up raising all of the money for the project. But that was really that was really how I kind of even decided to start teaching. It was just like a means to an end in that moment. Really, my focus was more on the nonprofit side of things. And then I went, did the project in Ethiopia, came back and I was like, okay, now, but now I have to start all over because we still have to wait a year for that expedited or non-expedited process to happen and that's then when I had the idea for a yoga retreat because it was a lot to manage that many teachers all over the world different time zones like you guys are saying earlier you know it could be tricky and 
I love yoga teachers, but sometimes, you know, we can be a little flaky <laughs> and a little it's just hard to get mm-hmm. a hold of. So I was like, I don't really want to just manage hundreds of teachers for the rest of my life. So what if I put together more of like an event that could raise just as much money over the course of one event or two events? And that's then when I got into teaching retreats. So very unusual kind of path into teaching. I started teaching retreats when I was, I had less than a year of experience. And that's not something I recommend to people. Let me be clear. I don't necessarily think you should do that. I was just trying to make ends meet. And my focus was really on the projects and wanting to raise that money. And there's, there's no set way of being a teacher, is there? It all is, is there's so many variables. Yeah. And yeah, most people shouldn't teach a retreat super soon. But I know lots of people that have already <laughs> generated a massive social following due to their blogging or due to their fitness stuff and they do a teacher training not teach a, a retreat and suddenly in a month it's 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 sold out with 20 people and they've literally just qualified it's, it's, mm-hmm. that's a beauty of being self-employed in this kind of industry is that although it can be very limiting if you're not willing to kind of hustle a little bit and be inventive if you are it can take you in so many different places like we've you know our, our little baby's been in nine countries already thanks to uh, the career oh. and then who would have thought they would end up like podcasting you know all of these things were never part of the plan when exactly. I did a yoga teacher and podcasting or doing events or sound healing or trainings I just assumed I'd be a hippie walking around East London with my long hair and my beads just <laughs> teaching 20 classes a week forever, forever. yeah did you, did you I kind of thought that would be my life <laughs> <laughs> just like a proper I was very, very spiritual back then are you happy it's turned out differently to that yeah it's all right yeah <laughs> no, I love it. I love how it turned out. <laughs> and that's how it turned out for you, because you're talking to us from Nicaragua. So you found you found love in Nicaragua, and you found a retreat center in Nicaragua. How how did all that happen? Oh, yeah. So this is my wife and I actually met here at the end of 2019. Very unexpectedly, we both individually came here for surf trips. She had already been surfing for a little while. I had dabbled in it, but I really wanted to focus on learning how to surf. That was just something I wanted to just kind of prioritize play and joy. And I wanted to do that through surf. So came to Nicaragua. We both ended up in a shared dorm room, which we were, neither of us were happy about. We're 31, 32 years old. Like, why am I in a shared dorm right now over New Year's? But it was the only place that was available. Two bed. Was it a two bed dorm we or was it a multiple bed dorm? It was four. four, It was four beds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there were other people there who, and all of us became really good friends. Her and I included. We had five days together. And then she left and went back to the States. She works in corporate America. She is an exec in finance. Like very, very different world than me. And I was planning on staying in Nicaragua for about six weeks or so. I had a bit of a break between retreats at that time. And we stayed in touch and I didn't really love the area where we met. So I decided to go somewhere else and came up to this area that we now live in. And I fell in love with it right away. And when I first met her, she was telling me that she eventually wanted to buy a little piece of land somewhere and eventually leave the corporate life. This was before COVID, before everyone was working remotely. So there wasn't as much that option back then this is 2019 not that long ago but it feels feels like an eternity and um i also wanted that same thing i've been traveling for 10 years at that point and i've been looking at different pieces of land i put deposits on pieces of land in other countries and it always fell through for one reason or another so 
when I came up here and I saw this piece of land and just fell in love with it right away. And I asked her, this is a stranger, essentially, who I'd known for five days, if she wanted to buy the land with me. <laughs> oh my God. And she was like, no, that's really weird that you would ask me that. <laughs> and so I was just like, no, you don't understand. Like, you have to come here. You have to see. I ended up convincing her to come back to Nicaragua just a few weeks later over MLK. She had a long weekend. So she was like, okay, I might be able to stretch a few extra days off. She comes back. She also had that same experience of like, wow, this place is so amazing. And in that time when she came back, so she we had 10 days together that time, not five, but 10. She stretched which in out. Which lesbian years is like <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we also fell in love during that time. And we actually signed the papers. And the way that our land is titled now, it's still divided down the center. We signed the papers as best friends. Never thought that this would happen, but... We signed the papers, fell in love, and all of it happened kind of at once. So, yeah, then we started building a year later and opened the following year after that. Oh, what a beautiful story. I love, I love, I love the story. <laughs> and hang on, so, but then you opened in the middle of COVID then? It was, so we opened, I always get confused because it was January 1st, so I think it was 2022. Yeah, 2022. So it was still not like middle, middle of COVID, but we were building in the middle of COVID and just try also right before COVID Nicaragua had had some protests and things that had become violent and there was just like a tourism sort of shut down in the country right before COVID and then COVID happened it was like kicking Nicaragua while it was down tourism wise so it was so hard just to convince people to come here at all and then adding COVID on top of it where people were still a little nervous about travel. But by that point, it was a lot more open. It was just more annoying with like getting the tests and it has to be the certain kind of tests and, you know, all of those regulations. And what's been the experience owning a retreat centre? Like I've, I've always, or we've kind of dabbled with the idea of occasionally. Before, before we moved to where we are now, we did consider not going to another country, but moving to a more remote place in the UK. And then we just thought, actually, you know, do we mm-hmm. want to deal with yoga mm-hmm. teachers on an admin front? Uh, probably not. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, like, is, do we want to be away from people? And probably not. But yes, yeah, so how has it been kind of owning a retreat center and spending a lot of time there and feeling it? Yeah, I mean, so I was the same way where I was always, it sounded like a dream. And so I worked at a lot of retreat centers as a teacher for a long time some of them from the ground up, like from construction until opening, just so I could really know, is this something that I want to do without investing my own money into figuring that out? So for anyone that is thinking like, oh, wow, that sounds like a dream, definitely work at a retreat center first. And there's a lot of opportunities, like some centers hire out to couples, families, that that you can fully run it for them for a year and kind of do whatever you want with it. So there's, there are really good middle grounds of ways to figure out, ooh, do I want to do this without investing a lot of money and time and energy into this? Um, because it is it is a totally different job than just teaching yoga. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to reiterate to teachers who are interested in it. Same as teaching a retreat is a different job because you're now, you have that hospitality element, which is a 24-7 job. So it is, it's a lot of work. It's super important. We have an incredible staff and team that work with us. So we are not 
like we have a retreat here right now, but our manager is handling it. So we're not even, at, we can kind of pick and choose how frontward facing we want to be with it. Um, but if you are someone that is either on a smaller budget or, you know, you need, you aren't able to have a big staff, then just make sure that you have a lot of energy because it is, it takes a lot. It's a lot of work. Is, is there anything that you would tell yourself, your former self in 2019 <laughs> about something you should or shouldn't do in the journey of opening a retreat center any advice oh, to your 2019 I mean, we self we could have a whole separate podcast about this yes <laughs> i would absolutely hire a different contractor a different architect to start i mean there's just some functionality things here that were a nightmare we're because we're on a totally raw land we did not have electricity water wi-fi nothing we're oceanfront so you get that beating from all the salt water and so there's just some things functionality wise that our designer, for instance, he's like, but it's pretty. And you're like, yeah, but it just got eaten away by the salt water <laughs> or like it completely collapses in the wet season. So yeah, big, we, we didn't know anything about construction, about anything. It was really the blind leading the blind. And we trusted some, some people that we thought knew like architects and contractors that were not the most reliable mm -hmm. and then had to step in and figure all of that stuff out in a second language that I was also learning at the time. I didn't know any Spanish. So it was a huge, huge learning curve, but we did it. We, we look around sometimes and we're like, isn't it crazy that this is, this happened? <laughs> well, we actually pulled it off. What's, it, what's the name of it? If people want to find it, you would treat center. Still salty. Oh yes, of course. Still yes. salty. That's such a good name. And then yeah. that, that's .com. Yeah, Still Salty Escape is the full name, but most people know it as Still Salty. And as a last question, I mean, you've just got this amazing, infectious passion and, and drive for life and you're doing such amazing things. And you say on your website, you've chosen to create a life that you don't need to run away from where mm. you can, you know, work under a coconut tree. Have you always sort of had that vision in your heart or was there a point where you just thought, right, I'm actually just going to decide to have it all now? Yeah, I, I don't know why, but I, that has always been in me. Mm -hmm. I had an office job once. I worked at a nonprofit, and it was an amazing experience. I've, I've been in the nonprofit world for a long time. But the thought of just being in an office day in and day out, it was like my soul was just withering away. And, and this was also it was work that I enjoyed doing. It was important work, and I loved the company that I worked for, but I just couldn't do it. And I... It, even back then, before there was many opportunities on the internet to be able to be more entrepreneurial, you know, with all the ways we have now, like you said, podcasting and blogging and, and all of those things, Instagram, they were around, but not in the same way. But I was just sort of always like, I, I would rather make less money and be really happy and feel free mm -hmm. and be able to travel than kind of sacrifice my soul is what it felt like. And so I just kind of scrapped, scrapped it around and made it work. But I had a lot of odd jobs in the meantime. I was a nanny a lot. I bartended, you know, so I did a lot of things that were outside of my field. I didn't need a specific education for because I made really good money doing them. And I wanted to make good money so that I could travel as much as I possibly could. Inspiring. And what, what do you want people to know about you or where to find you or how to interact with you? 
Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. I don't really use many other platforms. My handle is Kayla La Nielsen. My website is there too. So I have a blog. I post a new blog every single day. Yoga, wellness, travel, all different kinds of content. Same kind of stuff that you find on my Instagram, which is more elaborated, more educational. And yeah, you can reach out to me there. You can connect with me there. I have some retreats, but they are full. You can join the wait list if you <laughs> want to, or you can come visit us in Nicaragua. Amazing. Amazing. Oh God, I wish I talked about how you uh, managed to do one blog a day. That's incredible. But Next that's time. one of the time. <laughs> time. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much you for so joining much, us. Thank you so much, Kayla. Honestly, Thank you. Balance.